was I thinking? Oh yeah, go to Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be reading some verses from Matthew chapter 6 eventually, um, actually pretty soon. But before we do that, I want to tell you about an embarrassing story from my life, so you'll pay attention to that probably. Um, you know how the most embarrassing things that happen to you are the things that you remember the best? I don't know why that is, but, but it's just the way that our minds work. Here is, here is one of mine. Um, and it's, it's not that embarrassing, I suppose, and it's from a long time ago. But when I was a kid, my family belonged to a swim club. And usually, you know, we just kind of go in the pool and hang out and play and goof off and play Marco Polo and that sort of thing. But once a year, they would take the pool and they'd close it down and they would have swim races. And so all the kids would get to, you know, to, to race competitively. And I didn't really get into that. But one year, somebody, I can't remember if it was a friend or a parent or somebody said, Paul, you're a pretty good swimmer. Why don't you at least enter the freestyle race? I mean, it's only you know, one length of the pool, and I didn't really want to do it, but whoever it was talked me into it, and so I went, and I entered the race, and I remember climbing up on that block. They had the blocks, and those are higher than you think, especially if you're a kid, and I remember, you know, the whistle blew, and we all dove in the water, and it was just, you know, everyone was splashing each other, and I remember that I dove in the water, and I just swam as fast and as hard as my, as my arms and legs could carry me, and I don't know how fast I was really going. I don't think it was all that fast. I remember over the course of the race that I stopped hearing the other swimmers. And um, no one ever told me that I was supposed to keep my eyes open to watch the bottom of the pool to make sure that I was staying in my lane and going in a straight line. And there were no ropes dividing the lanes. And after about 20 seconds, that became increasingly more silent for me. I remember um, touching the side of the pool finally. And I looked up to see if I had won or lost or what had happened, and, and all the other kids were actually finished the race, finishing the race down at the end of the pool, and I was touching the side over by the lifeguard stand because apparently my, my right arm was a lot stronger than my left arm back then, and so I just went completely sideways and ended up touching the wrong side of the pool. Now, I'm going to read you some Bible verses, and you could probably try to figure out how those Bible verses connect, and if not, I'll try to explain the analogy after we read them. But it's Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24 where Jesus says to his followers, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now listening to what Jesus says here in these verses about money and possessions, I was thinking this. I wonder how many of us even as believers, at the end of life's race, you know, we get to the finish line and we, we touch, you know, we touch at the end of the race, are, are going to look up and find that we've touched the wrong side of the pool, that we've gone the wrong direction, that, that we've achieved the wrong goal, that we've been laboring, striving maybe as hard as we possibly can, but not in the right direction. And I wonder if one of the big reasons for that is that most of us have our eyes closed we haven't really considered maybe what we're doing when it comes to how we treat our money, our material possessions, and what those choices might be doing to us. As, as we think today more about God's kingdom, being God's rule over God's people in God's place, 
it, it strikes me that this is one area in which if God really got control of our lives, if God really got us in this area, that our lives would look a whole lot different from the people who are not part of his kingdom. Because how we deal with money and you know, possessions, material things, is a very visible and noticeable part of life. But, but too often, I, I fear that we end up taking pretty much the same view as everybody else in the world with regard to these things. And again, it's, it's probably because our eyes are not always open when it comes to our financial choices because it is so easy in this area just to let our unstated assumptions take over and to kind of live life on autopilot and not think about what we're doing. And when we start thinking like that, you know, often it's reflected in the way that we think about obtaining new items, right? We, we catch ourselves thinking, of course I need X. You know, of course I need that new cell phone because it's the next cell phone you're supposed to get. Of course I need that, that we need that car. Of course we need to get that streaming service or we'll miss this, this show. Of course I need that set of headphones. Of course I need that new piece of furniture, that purse, that lawnmower, the bigger TV, the new set of irons, that pair of shoes, that video game console. You know, we, don't, we get to the point where we stop even questioning these things and we just assume that we need them until we finally find ourselves asking the question, hey, where did all the closet space in this house go? Right, I mean, wasn't there more storage when we moved in? Or worse yet, <laughs> when did we get this? I don't remember buying this. Apparently you did. When Jesus says, if your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light, and, and I think in the ESV that we read, it said if your eyes are healthy, the word there for good or healthy actually means that our eyes are clear and unobstructed. If your eyes are clear and unobstructed, I've even heard it translated as open, if your eyes are open. Now, I need to tell you something. Yes, we're talking about money and possessions today, which may make you feel uncomfortable, whatever, but I, I am not here this morning to micromanage your financial life or tell you what you need or don't need. I can't do that for you. I'm not qualified. You, only you can make that decision. And, and there's not going to be some cut and dry formula that you can follow when it comes to this. But what I am asking you to do, and what Jesus is asking you to do here, is simply to open your eyes and pay attention. Make sure you are being deliberate in these areas and not just living the financial and material part of your life on autopilot. Because as Jesus gets to saying later on in the passage that we just read, that can be actually very dangerous for your soul. There are some big things at stake here. And you might find yourself serving the wrong God. Did you ever read um, or maybe see on TV about those people that keep dangerous pets? You know, snakes and stuff and alligators and all. And I think there's even a cable show about dangerous pets or something like that. Like some guy in New York City that would keep like a 14-foot python in his bathroom. And then, you know, you read stories that every once in a while one of these pythons suddenly remembers that he's, you know, a python. And, and that turns out to be bad news for the so-called owner or, 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 or master. And it's not the python's fault when, when he, he gets the owner. It, he, the python is neither good or evil, but if, if he's managed in the wrong way, he, he carries the potential for a lot of damage, Right? And Jesus is warning us here that our material possessions, while they are not evil in themselves, they have the power in them to do tremendous damage to our spiritual lives and to the lives of our family as well if we don't manage them properly. And that can happen, by the way, if you have a little stuff or if you have a lot of stuff. And in verse 24, Jesus gets to using the language really of spiritual warfare. He talks about different gods 
because he knows that money can very easily enslave us, and more than almost anything else in our lives, money can easily become our God. Has anyone ever asked you this question? Or maybe you've had to fill it out on some sort of a form. What is your net worth? You know, you know what that means, right? When somebody asks you your net worth, what are they asking you? They're saying, how much material wealth do you have? When did that become our net worth? Do you ever think about that phrase? Now, maybe that's just a harmless financial state or, you know, term to you, but maybe not. Maybe we get to thinking about it that way. Maybe, maybe we can get to a point where we define our worth or even our very identity in terms of what we have or maybe in terms of, of what we have the ability to get, such that if we lost our wealth or if we lost the ability to, to gain wealth, then at some point we'd say, you know, life is really no longer worth living anymore because I've lost the ability to control my own destiny and to make these decisions. I've lost the ability to go where I want to go and live where I want to live and do what I want to do. I've lost the ability to maximize my health or my leisure time or, or maybe you know, the, the, the beauty of my physical appearance. These are all avenues through which our money can become the ruler of our lives, our God really. And Jesus says that, that, that when we get to this point, we're no longer serving the Lord. We're actually serving an idol because it's impossible to do both at the same time. But even if you don't go to that extreme, there are other ways that money and possessions can maybe in a more subtle way sort of take over our lives. You see, the more, and you all know this, the more stuff you have and the more money you have, the more you have to, to protect, right? The more you have to insure the more you have to maintain, the more you have to repair, the more you have to move when you have to move, right? Have you ever experienced that lately? That's when you find out how much stuff you have. The more you have to paint and wash and, and dust and find a place for somewhere. And pretty soon, you find that a huge part of your life is taken up just caring for your stuff. And Jesus says, before you know it, you've misplaced your heart. You lost it. Because Jesus says, your heart tends to follow your treasure. And it's, it's very interesting to me how Jesus phrases this. He does, you'd think he would say, where, where, your, where your heart is, that's where you'll put your treasure. But he doesn't. He does it the other way around. He says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to go. It's just going to go there. So that means if you want to find out where your heart is, probably the best place to look is at your bank account. Or... Um, in your credit card statement, or maybe your investment portfolio. Because if you look there, you, you will see a pretty good reflection of where your priorities are, what you really love. And just to get real practical for a moment, this to me is one of the best reasons for creating a family budget, even a written one that you can actually look at if it's on paper or on a spreadsheet or whatever, so you can see how much money you spend every month on different things in your life, and you can see how your, among other things, you can see how your priorities line up with God's kingdom priorities. And this can be very enlightening. Dawn and I have been doing this every year since we got married, and as we've done this, the one thing we've discovered over the years, and you'll discover too if you do this, is that there are, are relatively few line items on that budget that you can change a whole lot, because a lot of it is kind of fixed. 
If you think about things like you know, um, mortgage payments and utilities and insurance and taxes, and to some extent even food and clothing, these are things that you can't change a whole lot, maybe a little bit, but not a lot. And, and we find the places where we end up making the most significant decisions, where we have the most freedom, are places like home improvement and travel and, and recreation and entertainment and giving, especially giving to missions. Now, these are things that we face real decisions about. And when we see them on paper or on a spreadsheet or whatever, it becomes more obvious what Jesus is talking about here. You see, when Jesus talks about storing up treasure in heaven instead of on earth, what he's talking about is making what we might call kingdom investments. Kingdom investments. We're going to end up this morning down at verse 33 eventually, which is that famous verse that says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But that famous verse comes in the context of these very practical, often financial decisions. And to put it kind of bluntly, what Jesus is saying is that kingdom people invest their resources in kingdom priorities. Kingdom people invest their resources in kingdom priorities. That's what we do. And giving to missions, you know, I mentioned that, but that's only one example of this. But think, what are the things that you can give to invest in? What are the things that will expand the kingdom of God? What are the things that will strengthen the kingdom of God? What will bring the rule of God into the hearts of more and more people and into the places where they live and work and play and serve and relate to others? How can I expend my resources in order to be a part of the expansion of God's kingdom? And Jesus says that the cool thing about making investments like this is that they're ultimately 100% secure. They're totally secure. Unlike earthly investments, they can lose their value in a number of ways. He talks about thieves breaking in and stealing. He talks about moth and rust. And back then, a lot of people had a lot of their wealth actually in their clothing, their nice outfits and stuff. And so moths could really do a, a number on you. But today, it's usually different things that take away our money, but our investments are not ultimately all that secure. But the investments in God's kingdom that you make are actually kept perfectly secure, and they are attached to your eternal inheritance that Peter says cannot ever be corrupted or fade away. It's as if you have some heavenly bank account that you are transferring money into. It's being converted in some ways into other things, but, but, and you can't take it with you. We always say that, right? You can't take it with you. But in this mysterious way, you can actually send it on ahead. And by the way, here's another thing about investing in God's kingdom. It can actually release you from the spiritual bondage to your money. Because the surest way to break free from the love of money, and really ultimately the only way probably, is to give it away. Is to give it away. But let me ask you a couple of kind of heart questions you can use as, as a barometer this morning of where you are on this issue. Let's say, and this is going to sound like a commercial, but let's say you found out that you could save $75 a month on your cell phone bill and still get the same service or whatever. So you did the math and you found out, wow, we can do that, and you changed, and so you get $900 extra a year. Now, what would you be most excited to spend that $900 on? Where would your heart go? You know, how, how would you start to dream about what to do with that money. Or maybe if it was more money than that, maybe if you had like the proverbial rich uncle and he left you even more than that, you know, what, what would you do with it? What, what would you be excited to do about it? You would say, well, we have to get a new transmission. We've got to replace the roof. Yeah, I know you have to do all that. But what, if, what, what would you be excited about? What would you dream about? Would it be something to do with a hobby? Would it be travel? Would it be some new technology you could finally afford? Or, or would it enter into your thinking 
here is an opportunity to make some kingdom investments, to see, to, to maybe set this money aside to, to help a brother or sister in need if the need arises, to give more to the poor, to invest in world missions, to do something else that you believe is a kingdom priority. Again, I'm not trying to tell you what to do, but it's interesting. I was reading in Zephaniah, of all places, this week, and I came across a verse where God is lamenting that his people have turned their backs on him. They've turned away from following him. And he says this, that they no longer seek him or inquire of him. They no longer inquire of him. That word inquire hit me pretty hard, and I thought, when's the last time that I inquired of the Lord as to what he'd like me to do with my money or my possessions? And this is a huge thing, not just for individuals. It's actually a huge thing for our church right now. You need to know this because the last mortgage payment on this building was made just a few days ago, which is an awesome thing. And that is definitely something to celebrate, but it's also a tremendous opportunity and ultimately a responsibility since theoretically that frees up a lot of money, right? And one of the things that has moved me and your leadership to put so much effort into enhancing this church's corporate prayer life is that we know that we as a body of believers need to inquire of the Lord. What do we do? As we, as we draw close to him, we believe that among other great benefits, he will make his ways known to us and we'll be able to do the right thing with this money. Here's another heart question, and this will be different depending on where you're at and your age and all that, but when you think about retirement, okay, a few of you are already retired, I know. Um, a lot of you are looking ahead to retirement. Uh, some of you are petrified because you don't know what you will do if you retire because what do you do if you don't work? But, but Assuming you are looking forward to it or to the rest of your retirement, as the case may be, what do you look forward to the most? What is the most attractive thing about the freedom and the lack of structure that you will have at that time in your life? Is it the chance to travel more? Is it the chance to spend more time with your grandkids? Is it the chance to play tons of golf? Is it the chance to sit on a beach chair or on the deck of a fishing boat and just do nothing but soak in the sun? Those are not bad things. I'm not here to tell you not to do them, but I have two things to say about that, okay? The first is this. Although I have not yet retired, okay, I know a lot of people who have. I'm related to some of them, okay? And I will tell you this. From all the experience I know, that the dream retirement, that beautiful, perfect picture that you just painted for yourself when I was talking about those things, that dream retirement does not exist. It will not happen. It won't. Some of you are laughing because you know this is true. There are other things. Health issues, economic setbacks, family crises, aging relatives. These are things that are going to intrude on that time. You may get a taste of it, but that's all you'll get. But you know what? That's okay. Because retirement was never supposed to be a substitute for heaven. And if you spend your retirement trying to successfully cross off every single item on your life's bucket list, all those things that you always wanted to do, that would actually be kind of a tragic thing because you'd be missing some cool surprises that God would like to throw your way later in your life. You see, you can also look forward to having more time to disciple and mentor other people. Maybe including your kids or your grandkids, but, but, but others as well. You might have more time to have a more relaxed and vital and consistent prayer life. You might look forward to giving more generously or more strategically to bring the good news of Jesus to the nations and maybe even go on a missions trip or two yourself. And you might think about having more time to serve others, 
to make a few more good friends, and to be able to be there in a pinch whenever someone needs you because there's no longer anywhere you have to be. I mentioned retirement because I think it's a good transition to talking about what Jesus talks about next, starting in verse 25. Because here, he gives us what we probably think of as the most impossible commandment in the entire Sermon on the Mount. And he already said, be perfect. But this one we think of is harder. He says, don't worry. Right? Don't be anxious. And he lists a bunch of things, you, you know, your, your, your clothing, your whatever. But he lists, basically he says, don't worry about anything. Isn't it true that one of the reasons that we amass wealth is not because we're greedy and it's not because we always have to have the nicest things, but it's because we're worried, right, about the future. What is going to happen to us? What if we go hungry? What if our family won't be able to survive? What if something happens to the economy? What if we're not, allowed to, well, what if we're not able to leave as much as we like for our children? A few months ago, I went on one of those financial websites. It might have been Fidelity Investments. I can't remember. But there was one of those tools there, and you probably, some of you have seen these. It's a tool that will tell you exactly how big your nest egg has to be in order for you to live through retirement comfortably. And you put in some data. So, you know, it says put in your retirement age. You know, so I put in, okay, 55. And then, <laughs> just kidding. Um, <laughs> I better get started. Um, no, I put in some realistic numbers. But the number that came out of that thing, really, it threw me for a loop. I was like, I don't think so. But I, I, I looked underneath the covers of the program and the assumptions, and it was assuming that I was going to live to be 94 and that Dawn was going to live to be 96. Well, maybe. But you know what? I was beginning to think that that, that, that software tool just wanted me to worry. You know, it wanted me to worry as much as possible. I wonder why. By the way, here's just another thought question. Do you think it's possible to leave your children too much money and in that way to burden them beyond what they can handle? You can talk about that one later. Jesus knows how hard the command that he just gave us is when he said, don't worry. And so here is where he goes into really the longest part of the sermon. It's the deepest explanation in the whole Sermon on the Mount in order to help us to learn to obey this don't worry command. And Jesus here gets supremely logical. So if you're one of those people that loves logic and reason and analysis and things that follow one after the other so that you can kind of follow someone's reasoning, this paragraph is for you because that's what Jesus does. After telling us not to worry, Jesus basically gives us four very logical arguments and then he gives us a promise. So we're going to spend the rest of the time looking at that, and we're going to go pretty fast through the arguments. You will understand them, and what you can do is kind of pick your favorite one, because I think Jesus is just giving us a bunch of, 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 of reasons here, and he wants people to, to figure out which one works for them. So I'll let you do that. Argument number one is in verse 25, which says this, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So this is an argument they usually call from the greater to the lesser. Jesus is saying this, if God can do the really hard things, why shouldn't he be able to do the easy things? God is the inventor of your very life, right? I mean, he breathed life into your body. He designed the whole thing. Now, compared to that, how difficult is it for him to provide it with food and clothing and shelter? Not difficult at all. If God goes through all the trouble to create something as glorious and magnificent and complicated as your body, then why would he turn around and refuse to care for it? That's argument number one. Argument number two is actually kind of in the opposite direction. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater, and it's the longer part of it, but it's in verses 26 to 30, where Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. 
They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow was thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Jesus is reminding us here that, that God does some amazing things for the flowers and the birds, even though they are not nearly as important as we are. So why should he not do even more for us? Those of you who have little kids, okay, do you buy them really, really nice clothes that are really expensive? No. Why not? Because you know that very soon that outfit is either going to be destroyed or the child will grow out of it, right? Probably in a matter of weeks. And you don't want to waste your hard-earned money on something that is so short-lived. But Jesus says that the flowers are here today and gone tomorrow. And those birds of the field, later on in Matthew, he talks about two sparrows selling for a penny. And yet, look how extravagantly God dresses these flowers and provides for these birds. If God is so generous with creatures that are of such little worth, then how could he fail to take care of us? Who are so special that we actually carry the image of God within us. That's argument number two. Argument number three is jammed in there between one and two. You might have missed it. It's in verse 27. But it will appeal to a lot of you because you can call this one the practical argument, okay, or the pragmatic argument, or the very blunt argument. Jesus says, which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? He's basically saying, look, don't worry because it doesn't make any sense because it doesn't help. It doesn't help. Now, worrying can shorten your life, and I don't have time to go through all the physiological and psychological things that happen to you because of your worry and how it can really affect you. Worry can shorten your life, but it can't lengthen it. There is someone that can give you a long life, but it's not yourself, and you don't get there by worrying. That's argument three. Argument four might be your favorite. It's the one that I would call the argument from relationship, and it says this. It's in verses 31 and 32. We'll just go ahead and read those. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Jesus says when, you're worry, when you worry, you're being like the heathens. You're being like the people that don't know God. The reason they worry about earthly things so much is that they have nothing else to do. This is what their life consists of because they don't know God. So they're just running after these things. They are spiritual orphans but you're not. God is not just God for you if you're a follower of Christ. God is your Father. Now, if Dawn and I went to the adoption agency tomorrow and we said, you know what, we want to adopt a little baby, they would ask us some questions, right? They'd first say, why, why do you want to adopt a baby? You're so old. The second question they would ask is, are you prepared to meet the material needs of this child? Now, we wouldn't say, no, why would we do something like that? right? That would be silly. It doesn't make any sense. It makes no sense for God either, and God is a way better dad than I will ever be. So why can't we trust him and stop worrying so much? Now let's, let's close this morning by looking at the promise. I'm just going to read you verses 33 and 34. We'll, we'll concentrate on 33, but he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is being kind of tongue-in-cheek, almost humorous here, as he kind of brings his argument to a close. And it, it's in some ways, it's the most positive and, and most gracious of, of all the parts of the Sermon on the Mount. It's as if Jesus kind of has a smile, and he's trying to get us to understand how much God loves us. Before we look at verse 33 more closely, let me remind you of something that we can never afford to forget in this talk of investing, okay? And that is that God has already made the biggest investment. God has already made by far the biggest investment, a bigger one than we could ever make. God has invested in literally becoming one of us when the Father sent the Son to this earth to become a full-fledged human being and then to give everything, to give his very life to forgive our sins, and to release us from eternal hopelessness and despair and bondage. And if God has invested that kind of treasure, remember we sang this morning that he made a wretch his treasure? If God has made you his treasure, if he's invested that kind of treasure in you, don't you think that maybe God's heart follows his treasure as well? Where is God's heart? Do you think God would walk away from that kind of investment? Not a chance. As it says in Hebrews 12, it says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Not only will God never leave or forsake us, he will also care for us and provide for that which we need. Another verse that I absolutely love and I share with people all the time is another verse that has that kind of uh, greater to the lesser argument. It's Romans 8.32. It's where it says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And don't forget that word, Father. God is not going to walk away from his kids, not from his family. But also remember this, and here's where we kind of get into verse 33 a little bit, that God's family, the family into which you have been adopted and included, the family that you're a part of, you're part of God's family, is a family on mission. It's a family on a mission. You, you might say there's a family business. And that family business is building up the kingdom of God by bringing the gospel to more and more people, setting them free from sin and self like we've been set free from those things, and bringing people closer to Jesus and discipling them to be more like him. That's what the family business is. Now, if you're part of a business or you own a business, and you're passionate about it, maybe you create a product or maybe you provide a service that helps people or whatever, you probably got into that business in order to provide those goods and services, not to keep the lights on and pay the insurance bills and run payroll, right? We call that stuff, what do we call that stuff? Overhead, right? That's overhead. And nobody who is really excited about what their business does gets excited about overhead. In fact, we try to minimize the amount of time and money and effort that goes into overhead. Here's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6, 33. He's saying, look, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He's saying, your heavenly Father has you covered. He's going to make sure you're taken care of so you are free to prioritize the family business. He'll take care of the overhead. So when you get up in the morning... Don't immediately start worrying about how to keep the lights on and pay the insurance bills and run payroll. The first thing that you need to think about is what can I do today to help the family business succeed? When it says seek ye first 
the first isn't just first in priority. Really what the word basically means is it's the first thing you do, first in order. The first thing that comes to your mind when your feet hit the floor on Monday morning. Yeah, he knows you need to do all that stuff. He knows you need these things. He knows you need to go to work. He knows you need to send your kids to school. He knows you need to do all that stuff. But do you think when you get up in the morning, okay, what can I do today to make some kind of investment in the family business, in, in the kingdom of God? Kingdom people are free to maximize their kingdom investments because we are part of a family on mission and dad is going to make sure we have what we need. So let's look for ways to trust him with our money, with our stuff, with our time, and with our lives. Let's pray as we go to the Lord's table.